Listener discretion is advised for the following episode as we will be discussing themes of plane crashes, loss of life, physical injury, and gore. Welcome to Rants and Rabbit Trails. I'm your host, Pearl. And I'm your host, Morgan. And today, Morgan's got a little... um, Unanswered mystery. Unresolved. Sort of deal. And mine is a survival somewhat story um so it might be a little bit more happy yeah it might have a little bit i mean like having a resolution is nice yeah Um, yeah so morgan's gonna go first yeah i'm coming to the table today and i'm gonna be talking about malaysia flight mh370 which so I low-key have heard... I I don't know anything about it, but I've always seen stuff about it, so I'm very curious. Yeah, Um, just on a limb, I randomly started, like, watching and looking and researching on it, um, and I thought it was really interesting um, and heartbreaking, honestly, but wanted to share... um, So, Flight 370 is referred to as one of the biggest mysteries in aviation history, and for good reason. So, if you haven't seen or read anything in depth about this, it is truly and incredibly odd, and just... This is one of those things that, like, you can't help but be fascinated by, because it's like, what the hell happened? Exactly, yeah. So, I had heard a little bit of it, or about it here and there but i was only about 15 when this happened so i hadn't fully looked into it until recently so and then i immediately got hooked and the more i learned the more confused i became and like baffled so um i was like let's talk about it let's talk about it it is very strange so um Here's your disclaimer, folks. Prepare for the real-life melancholy mystery and unexplainable tale of the disappearance of flight MH370. Piloted by 53-year-old Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah and co-piloted by 27-year-old Farik Abdul Hamid, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 was a commercial airliner that departed from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia on March 8th, 2014, at 12.41 a.m., and it began its journey northward to its intended destination of Beijing Capital International Airport in China. So, I didn't um, mention this before, but it is a little number heavy. Okay. (laughs) So, I'll try to backtrack if needed, or kind of, like, repeat times or whatever. Okay. Um, But... Yeah, so the Boeing 777 was carrying a total of 239 people, 12 crew members, and 227 passengers from 14 different countries. So bear with me now, because it's going to get deep and complicated. The flight had an anticipated duration of 5 hours and 34 minutes, so about 5.5 hours, which would use approximately... 82,000 pounds of jet fuel. The plane itself was fueled up to 108,000 pounds of fuel, which would in turn allow for about seven and a half hours of flight. So they had okay. They had enough to get some reserves. Yeah, some for three extra hours uh, for what was anticipated they would need. So this means, firstly, that it had plenty of fuel to make the trip. 
and secondly, that it had plenty of fuel to divert and land at an alternate airport should the need arise while on its journey. Pretty standard, right? Yeah, yeah. Prepare for whatever you might need. Um, Again, MH370 began its journey out of Kuala Lumpur at 12.41 in the morning, cleared with air traffic control to begin the ascent, and reached cruising altitude, which is about 35,000 feet, shortly after 1 a.m., so about 20 minutes later, it was cruising up there at 35,000. At 1.06, the final transmission received was an automated position report. So the final verbal acknowledgement to air traffic control was from Captain Zahari, in which he reported the transition from Malaysian airspace to Vietnamese airspace across the South China Sea. Um, at 1.19 a.m., about 40 minutes after takeoff, Captain Zahari's voice transmission was sent. Quote, Good night, Malaysian 370. End quote. Bro. Ah! <laughs> oh my god. It's a little... I literally just had a full body chill moment. It's a little tingly. I was like, okay, that's bone chilling. Two minutes later, the plane went electronically silent and the transmitter stopped transmitting. The Vietnamese air traffic control received no signal from the plane to report passing into their airspace, which was routinely expected shortly thereafter, obviously. Right. Another commercial... That's so quick. Yeah. It was, uh, let's see. You say 40 40 minutes or something? About 40 minutes after takeoff. And then a couple minutes after that, it went completely silent. Um, So another commercial Boeing 777 pilot that was 30 minutes ahead of MH370 attempted contact using their emergency frequency after being requested to do so by the Vietnamese air traffic control um, after their failed attempts to establish contact. So the other commercial pilot was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll try. (laughs) This pilot stated, quote, we managed to establish contact with MH370 just after 1.30 a.m. There were a lot of interference, static, but I heard mumbling from the other end. That was the last time we heard from them as we lost the connection. End quote. So 1.30 was about 10 minutes after it went silent. Dude. I don't like it. Yeah. To back up a little bit, flights, um, or four flights over large bodies of water and out of range for equipment on the ground... Aircraft and air traffic control rely on signals emitted by an automatic transponder that is sent up to a satellite from the plane and back down to air traffic control to ensure the craft's location. Okay. Um, so this is called an automatic dependent surveillance broadcast transponder. Wow. Okay. Uh, and for MH370... That transponder stopped working right in the gray area between Malaysian airspace and Vietnamese airspace. So, literally right after they left, and right before they entered, the transponder stopped working. What the fuck? Um, So that's another thing 
to me at least that is really sus <laughs> yeah that's a really interesting detail and very yeah very strange timing a little later on another contact attempt was made by a second malaysian Air- airlines craft via the lemper frequency but that was unsuccessful and that was the frequency in which um, MH370's last transmission was made. Okay. So they were like, let's try this one, but let's it try some work. stuff out. Yeah, so we could not really get any contact through the emergency transmission, the Lemper transmission, and air traffic control could not contact <sighs> it. So during the next few hours, multiple messages between air traffic controls were passed in an attempt to establish what the actual fuck was going on, if anyone had made contact, and to try and figure out where the hell the plane had gone, and nobody had an answer. The next morning, Malaysia Airlines issued a statement around 7.30 a.m., one hour after the flight was scheduled to land in Beijing, stating that communications had been lost early that morning and that a search and rescue operation had been ordered and was underway. So, seven hours about from takeoff till now. <laughs> okay. I'm like, were there people waiting at the airport? Like, so what's going on? And they're just like... Yeah. Just imagining the... uh the confusion, you know? Yeah. Um, one of the weirdest things about this story is that there was one more ping, is what they called it, of the aircraft's location via satellite. One more after communications had gone silent. And it was over the Indian Ocean, which is the complete opposite yeah side of um, land what you doing over there yeah so that's um the map okay it that's was what over I was here at earlier i was like uh it should have hello been over here. that is a vast difference it's literally a complete that opposite crazy yeah i wrote um it was over the indian ocean now for folks that aren't geography buffs <laughs> the flight plan was north northeast taking off from Kuala Lumpur in the south, heading over the South China Sea northeast, and up to Beijing, China. If the aircraft went the opposite way, which was northwest, it would be over the Indian Ocean. So, from... So what? (laughs) From that location, there is nowhere that the plane could have landed in case of an emergency, meaning that the collective assumption is that the plane crashed into the water over the Indian Ocean somewhere. This new information was not taken well, which is understandable, because if the plane ended up in the middle of the Indian Ocean, then the likelihood that every single person on the plane had perished is 100% at this point, and the family members were expected to just swallow that, based on a little tidbit of info. Um, yeah. So that did not... (laughs) That's not really the... Yeah. Mm, yeah. Understandable. Um, that's when unrest kind of really cranked up. Um, and people, you know, that were in the crowd while announcements were being made, were, you know, people started getting really rowdy and upset. And 
Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Chaotic. Like, WT fuck is going on? I certainly wouldn't be able to swallow that, and I'd be pissed too. Yeah. Um, and to make things worse, a lot of the family members had learned this news via text with the message, quote, We have to assume beyond all reasonable doubt that MH370 has been lost and none of those on board survived, end quote. Bro. Via text. That is literally so fucking tragic. I can't yeah. imagine receiving a text like that yeah. and just being like, oh, just being expected um, okay. to kind of be like, okay, what the? like that is. Thanks for the text. The worst thing that could happen to a person. Fucking awful. Family members, um, about two hundred people in total, marched on the Malaysian embassy in Beijing in protest, demanding the truth, and fought with soldiers in riot gear, throwing water bottles and things at these oh my guys. God. Um, it was. Intense. There are videos on YouTube. Um, there's a lot of info online about this, but a quote from an article I found via The Guardian states, quote, On Tuesday, about 200 people marched from the Beijing hotel where they were staying to the Malaysian embassy wearing t-shirts reading, Pray for MH370, and carrying printed signs saying, Tell us the truth, and... MH370, don't let us wait too long. End quote. Oh my god. Article was from March 25th, 2014. Damn. That's yeah. fucking wild. It's fucking brutal and horrible. To recap, the airliner took off his scheduled um, all, was, all was well for about 40 minutes. And right before they should have sent a transmission to notify air traffic control of their crossing into the next airspace, communications went silent. An hour later, about 2.30ish, the satellite transmission turned on for a moment, showing that they were over the Indian Ocean, which was the exact opposite direction from which they should have been heading. So and nothing about this was like... Yeah. And at that point, they had already, you know, gone through a couple hours of fuel. And I don't know if you know, but the Indian Ocean is not small. Right. <laughs> um, there's nowhere that they could have gone to land safely at that point with the amount of fuel that they had left. Um, it's just so weird. So, so weird. So fucking weird. Um, Especially for it to, like, go offline and then, like, one little blip. I mean, like... Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. Because of that little blip, the search was moved to the southern Indian Ocean one week after the plane's disappearance due to the satellite showing that ping in the area. So for one whole week, they were searching in supposedly the wrong area, which was over the South China Sea. I'm confused. That little blip came on that same day, right? Yeah, it came so around So why were they spending a week looking elsewhere when they knew that they had, like, shown up as being in that area? Oh, um... Or am I stupid? Am I... Am I, I don't know if they were aware that they had that data. Oh, what the fuck? I'm not sure. I can't recall Hello? exactly. Um, but 
according to this, when the electronics went silent and when, or like the, the trajectory, this, the intended flight path, it would make sense to search in the South China Sea. Right. I'm, I could be way off par because I don't exactly remember. I wrote this one a little while ago, but, um, I think that it just, I don't know, maybe they weren't aware of the data or something or it didn't come in until okay a while later or something <laughs> interesting yeah i'm not sure but yeah so for a week they were searching over the south china sea and then they moved over to the indian ocean people were even more pissed about that other people um, were upset due to the fact that they believed the plane was in fact somewhere over the south china sea um, or in the South China Sea, uh, multiple theories, of course, have been put right. together and concocted and multiple beliefs were held and still are about the whereabouts of MH370. Um, so some people, you know, thought maybe communications were hacked somehow by s some third party and the blip was a lead. Mm -hmm. Um in the opposite direction like maybe there was some foul business going on and so okay. they were so the search was drawn elsewhere mm -hmm. and it was in the south china sea or you know something happened the plane was hijacked and gone the opposite way right like who fucking knows yeah yeah um through a company called tomnod Millions of volunteers from all over the world stepped forward to search for debris belonging to MH370. Tomnod is now retired, does not exist anymore, but using satellite images, people were assigned different areas of the ocean to search. So you could just, <laughs> just like sit at their dinner table or something and search satellite images for plane debris. That's crazy. Um, That's kind of cool. Yeah. One of these volunteers' name was Cindy Hendry, and she has held fast to her claim that she located the crash site. She even pulled up the schematics for a Boeing 777 to cross-reference with the images that she found. So she was like cross-referencing the blueprints and schematics for the shape of the plane versus the this shape that she found in the water and fully believes that she found the crash site and found the debris. She went to social media and internet platforms in an attempt to garner attention to her discovery, but unfortunately <laughs> it didn't go anywhere, and she says she was ignored by investigators, especially when authorities and folks majorly believed that MHC-70 was somewhere in the Indian Ocean. Um, so they were just kind of ignoring okay. her. The fuck? Why are you going to fucking give these people... Okay, well, I guess it wasn't them that was giving people these areas to search. But still, it's like, uh, it seems like worth investigating to me, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Another guy named Jeff Wise, a private pilot and a science writer had been researching and following the story of MH370 uh, essentially the whole time <laughs> when he came up with a different theory. And his was that the disappearance of the plane was due to a 
secret Russian operation, and that the plane was hijacked and the data pings were tampered with, um, and that ultimately the plane ended up somewhere in Kazakhstan. And he has, there's way too much, <laughs> there was oh way God. too much for me to put in here, but he had like a ton of research and stuff like written out about this. He had been on like multiple news outlets talking about this. So he fully believes in this theory. Okay. And essentially it was that, you know, the hatch for getting down into the plane's electronic brain <laughs> Like, for a 777 is, like, right up next to where you, like, board. Mm hmm But, like, just right on the ground. So, essentially, something could happen. You could hijack the plane and asphyxiate the entire cabin from the cockpit. You could make everybody pass out, not know anything, and then go down to the hatch. You could get into the electronics and make it show up wherever you want. Um, huh. You okay. could turn off all the electronic communications and everything. Um, which is just insane to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's terrifying. That that's possible. Um, but that, yeah, that was his theory. Yeah, it's just so interesting to look over or like look into this and like look at different theories. I was gonna say, I'm sure there's so many theories. Yeah, yeah. Um, so over the course of a little more than a month, over 1,800,000 square miles of the ocean had been searched. Holy crap! Yeah. In January 2017, the search was suspended after nothing had been found. And at that point, it had been almost three years of the search. Um, and the entire search had been deemed the most expen expensive search in aviation history. Yeah, I can imagine. In July of 2015, a flaperon, which is a piece of the wing, I think it's the piece that kind of like goes up and down. Yeah, okay. Um, was found on the shore of Reunion Island in the western Indian Ocean. Um, it had signs of being, of having been ocean bound for quite a while. Just like the way it was beat up, I think there was, like, barnacles and stuff mm -hmm. grown on it. Um, but there were still some serial numbers found. After being passed by experts and the manufacturer, only one serial number matched. Yet the authorities nonetheless made public announcements confirming that it was a piece of MH370. Again, a lot of people were doubtful. Because it's like, out of, out of all these hmm. different, like pieces of evidence and and the serial numbers only one matched and like huh you make an official statement they're like we don't want to deal with this anymore very strange so they had more questions um some people were put th through the ringer again of having held out hope that the plane hadn't crashed um some were not sold at all on the idea that the plane had crashed in the indian ocean and wondered if the debris was purposefully planted there um, hmm. on the shore. Additional debris was found in the time following, but nothing has been 100% linked to MH370, which leads us to now, 
uh, about 10 years later, still wondering what the ever-loving fuck happened to this plane. Seriously? Um, and everyone on board and where... <laughs> what... What happened what to these people? What could have even happened that, like, this random plane, this random passenger plane just went completely haywire? Like, if it was hijacked, what was it hijacked for? And that... The pilot saying that shit? What the fuck? And the pilot... There are people that, like, have had known Captain Zahari and, like... He was a suspect for a while. Like, maybe he hijacked the plane and was doing something with it. But, you know, everybody that knew him was like, that's not like that, like the guy at all. He's one of the nicest people in the world. Like, um, so when suspicion kind of passed from him, uh, they were really grateful because, <laughs> and like his family and stuff probably too. But um, still, and then... Just the fact that it went the completely opposite way. Like, if they had an emergency and they needed to land, why go past all of the land? Yeah, exactly. There was apparently a, a um, like, military base. I think, like, U.S. military base or something in the South China Sea that, you know, people have speculated maybe they shot down the plane. People, there have been eyewitnesses in the South China Sea that have said they saw a plane on fire. Like, what the fuck? Falling out of the sky. But then where the fuck are the debris? Like, did that lady actually find it and nobody paid attention if so then the ping over the indian ocean was fake like who did that so many unanswered questions military like yeah our military ain't um, necessarily known for yeah. being super uh right great <laughs> yeah for you know valuing eva- valuing valuing human life yeah that's just so weird. Dude. So, so weird. But yeah, incredible amounts of speculation have been made. Theories, beliefs, what the authorities state, what people who don't trust the authorities state, what they're not stating. Uh, like, nonetheless, all this is just like one of the biggest question marks ever. Seriously. <laughs> like, like it's what happened yeah it's unsettling the unsurety of it and as a regular person and the families and multiple people that have talked about this have said like this was how can how can a regular commercial flight just disappear literally out and never be seen again fucking air like Like, what how unsettling that is (sighs) <sighs> that this, how can a plane of 239 people on board literally just disappear? I hate it. You know? It's so fucking weird. And search going so on sad. for three years, covering almost two million miles, and nothing found. And the authorities just kind of like saying, oh, yep, this is it. Like, 100, nothing, like I said, has been 100% linked to this plane. Dude. It's crazy that there's not even, like, 
a real shred of evidence. Yeah. Like, amongst all those things that are like, okay, that's a detail. Yeah. Nothing that would make any fucking sense. It's extremely confusing and unsettling. You know, there's hijacking, cargo. Maybe something was hidden in the cargo of a random... True. Or, like, a random commercial flight, and that was why it was important enough to hijack. Or, like, (laughs) uh, power interruption, unresponsive crew, crew being involved. Maybe everyone passed out due to lack of oxygen from something that happened. Like, literally nobody knows... And nothing has been found, again, that can be confirmed without a doubt. It's just so strange. Ugh, that makes me so sad. It makes me, like, sick. Thinking about... Honestly, I hope that it was a situation in where whatever happened, it was, like, quick for everyone. As sad as that sounds. But then, like, to have all these family members left with no real answers and, like... And people still today are, like, trying to figure out what happened to their families and things like that. And it's just, I sincerely hope that, like, one day, especially family members can get answers. Yeah. And the truth about mm, the whereabouts. How can a a fucking whole ass plane just vanish? That doesn't happen. Yeah. But the fact that it did is just so... It's so, so strange. And, um, yeah, again, I hope everybody and the family members get answers someday. And, yeah, that's the really, like, confusing and melancholy tale of Malaysian Airlines Flight MH370. Wow. Thank you for that terrifying story. The historical I wasn't already scared of planes (laughs) to death. I am now. Yeah, yeah. But now, like, now you know. It was honestly really interesting to research and just learn about this. I I don't think maybe a lot of people in our generation really knew. Yeah, like I said, I heard about this growing up, but, like, I never heard any of the details about it, and I wasn't, like, yeah, I wasn't looking looking into it when I was 15. Exactly. So. Thank you for listening and letting me teach you about something you might not have known today. Um, Um, Pearl has something for us today, too. So, the floor is yours. All right, I'm just going to get straight into it. This is the story of Juliana Kapka, the lone survivor of the Lanza Flight 508 crash. Juliana was born on October 10th, 1954 in Lima, Peru, to a German couple named Hans Wilhelm, a biologist, and Maria Kapka, an ornithologist, respectively. They worked at the Museum of Natural History in Lima before founding a research station called Panguana in the Amazon rainforest when Juliana was 14. She spent a lot of the time in the forest with her parents learning about wildlife and learning survival skills. She had to fly back to Lima to attend school and take her exams um, because she was a child. 
and she ended up graduating on December 23rd, 1971, at the age of 17. The next day, Christmas Eve, Juliana and her mother were going to fly back to Panguana. The only flight available was from Lansa, which was an airline that had a poor reputation due to a couple of fatal crashes in recent years. One flight killing all 97 passengers and crew on board, and the other killing 46 out of 49 passengers. So, not great. Not a good reputation. Hans Wilhelm was like, I don't like that. Maybe you guys should just stay and like take another flight on a different day. But they were like, it's Christmas. We want to be together. So they decided the risk was worth it. And they booked and boarded their flight to Pucalpa. And it was supposed to take less than an hour to get there. Super quick flight. First half of the flight was smooth sailing. Juliana liked flying and remembers not being worried when the turbulence started, but it quickly got worse and they had flown into a massive thunder and lightning storm and were surrounded by dark black clouds and lightning strikes, which I truly cannot imagine. The plane was shaking violently and there were luggage and Christmas gifts flying all over the place. She held hands with her mother as the rest of the passengers were screaming and crying. A lightning bolt struck the plane and it broke apart. My literal nightmare. Juliana said later on, quote, the next thing I knew, I was no longer inside the cabin. I was outside in the open air. I hadn't left the plane. The plane had left me, unquote. my God. She was still attached to the seat which was spinning rapidly as it fell towards the trees in the forest. She remembers seeing the forest beneath her spin as she got closer. She awoke the next day, Christmas morning, all alone underneath that bench that she had been attached to. All she was wearing was a short mini dress and one sandal. Miraculously, her injuries could have had been way worse. I mean, obviously oh she could have God. died. Um, the fall from the sky had been a two-mile drop. Holy fucking hell, dude. So it's thought that the airplane seat, coupled with the density of the forest she was crashing through, kind of like cushioned her fall and slowed her down a bit to the point where the impact didn't immediately kill her. She had a broken collarbone, a sprained <sighs> knee some decent gash wounds, and one of her eyes was swollen shut, and the other one um, was so swollen that she only had a small slit of vision in that eye. She also needed glasses, and she no longer had those. Oh my god. Which would be um, quite the obstacle. It had likely been raining down on her all night, and she was completely soaked and covered in mud. She had a nasty concussion. She still recognized the sounds of the forest around her and realized that she had survived the plane crash. Remembering a piece of survival advice she learned from her father, she knew that her best chance of finding any other living being was to follow any water she could find. Mm -hmm. So she sets out very, very slowly and she finds water. As she finds water, she begins walking, wading, and swimming along the rivers. After a few days of this, 
Juliana came across another airplane seat that had three deceased passengers still strapped to it. Which was gruesome. Yeah. The, they I had crashed head this. first. Oh my god. This poor girl. Among these passengers, there was a bag of candy found, which became her only short-lived sustenance for her entire time in the forest. She attempted to get the attention of rescue planes, which were passing overhead, but because the forest was so thick, they couldn't see even wreckage of the plane, much oh less passengers. God. So eventually she couldn't hear the planes anymore, and she was like, all right, well, looks like I'm going to have to get myself out of this. Um, Jesus. Another survival tip she had learned from her parents was that her biggest threat was not going to be animals but insects yeah and this would prove horrifyingly true trigger warning to people who hate bugs you really hate bugs i mean it's gonna be fucking gross like we can get through it okay that's fine um you know how i mentioned she had those gash wounds there was one deep one on her leg don't tell me and on her arm don't in which flies had not about eggs no. no i knew that i knew I knew you were going to say that. There were maggots in her arm. They were just crawling all around her, and she literally couldn't do anything about it but keep going. I will say that as horribly disgusting as that is, the maggots would also eat any dead flesh that could lead to infection. Oh my god. You're so so smart. (laughs) That's horrifyingly disgusting. Yeah, disgusting. And I want to puke. Just absolutely horrible also mosquitoes and other insects constantly swarmed her and crawled all over her body um along with wading and swimming through waters that had flesh-eating creatures and piranhas it would rain several times a day and was very hot but then it got really really cold at night and again she's only wearing a mini dress and one sandal still and one sandal on the 10th day She could barely stand. She could barely make any progress. Her wounds were festering and crawling with bugs. And she was on the brink of giving up. Oh my god. But she sees a boat. And she genuinely didn't think it was real. But she was like, okay, I gotta check this out. Mm. There's a boat over here, you know. Oh my gosh. So she gets to it. She touches it. And she's like, oh my god, this is real. And she gets like a shot of adrenaline. Gets like Mm -hmm. a boost of will to live she then noticed a small hut and managed to get inside she found gasoline inside and remembered that when the family dog had a similar infection her father had poured kerosene on it so she poured gasoline all over her open wounds and obviously this hurt like a bitch and the bugs that were crawling on her skin began to burrow deeper into (gasps) her skin and she had to pull 30 maggots <gasps> out of her arm. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm gonna This girl is a badass. I literally oh. can't. So, the next day, Juliana is discovered by three Peruvian men, and at first they were scared and thought she was a water spirit, a local a legend. Corpse. I mean, like, you can imagine what she must have looked like. Yeah. She was able to explain to them what had happened 
and they provided her with food and further medical aid. Oh my god. The next day, they brought her back to where she could be reunited with her father. In the following days, Hans Wilhelm searched desperately for news of his wife. Her body was discovered on January 12th, and... Oh my god. They said that although she had initially survived the crash... She had succumbed to her injuries several days later, which is just oh God. truly heartbreaking. It's horrible. <sighs> also, what the f- fuck with this airline? Oh, literally, well, are they what? just are these are planes plastic? Like, what's going on? Are their pilots just like some random dudes off the street that have never flown before, <sighs> and the plane is just made out of plastic? Like it's you said, so fucked. What the fuck? I hope this airline does not still exist. <laughs> yeah, I hope not too. I don't... Probably not, That's but horrible. I don't know. Fuck. So, Juliana moves back to Germany, where she would make a full recovery from her injuries. And she actually did return to the crash site the next year in order to help with um, the search efforts for their plane and whatever else was left behind. Um, oh my god. Just like her parents, she studied biology at the University of Kiel, graduating in 1980, and also received a doctorate from the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Juliana ended up traveling back to Peru to study mammalogy with a specific focus on bats. She published her thesis in 1987, titled Ecological Study of a Bat Colony in the Tropical Rainforest of Peru, and married an entomologist named Eric Diller, who had a special knowledge of parasitic wasps. I love these scientific bitches. What a power couple. Can you imagine being that? Like, people ask you what you do, you're like, oh, yes, I'm an entomologist. I'm just an entomologist. I just have... My thesis published um, on the study of bat colony in the tropical rainforest of Peru. Crazy. After the death of her father, Juliana became the director of Panguana in 2000. Her autobiography titled When I Fell from the Sky was published in March of 2011 and that year received the Corinne Literature Prize. Wow. In 2019, she was awarded the Order of Merit for Distinguished Services in the Degree of Grand Officer by the Government of Peru. Accolades on accolades. Wow. In 1998, Juliana was approached by a man named Werner Herzog, who had actually narrowly avoided boarding that same flight, and he had always been fascinated by it and wanted to make a documentary about it. So in this film, she actually takes a flight with Herzog and sits in the same section of the airplane she sat on that day. They spend time in the forest exploring the wreckage of the plane, and there's like some clips of this on YouTube, and it's crazy to just see her like calmly walking through this plane wreckage that she was a part of. She's my hero. (laughs) She said that long ago she had been able to compartmentalize um, the event as a way to cope and lead as normal of a life as she could. So... um, She says that when she was making that grueling 11-day trek through the forest, she told herself that if she survived, she would dedicate her life to meaningful conservation. In the 70s, 
with her father, when he was still alive, they began to lobby the Peruvian government for protection of the land, and although he unfortunately didn't live to see it, finally, in 2011, it was declared a private conservation area. Wow. Dr. Diller, as Juliana is now known, acquired sponsors from all over to help her acquire additional land around the existing acreage, and successfully, through these donations... The conservation area has... I don't know why I have such a hard time with that word. Mm-hmm. Conservation area has expanded from 445 acres to 4,000. The plants wow. and wildlife there have provided studies for around 315 published papers. It's home to over 500 different species of trees, 100 fish, 7 kinds of monkeys, 380 species of birds... Also, more than 600 kinds of butterflies, 26 kinds of bees, 15,000 kinds of moths, and 520 different kinds of ants. And there have now been 56 different types of bats discovered in Panguana, which is apparently quite a lot compared to bats in other places. It has been referred to as a sort of Garden of Eden for research because the biodiversity is so rich and has offered a lot of success for many different scientists. Um, of course, there's climate change. The temperature of Panguana has risen 4 degrees over the last 30 years. And in general, oh much of the Amazon has been deforested. Ugh. So they focus on educating locals about humanities effect on the conservation area and the effects if it is damaged too much. And Juliana now serves at a libra- as a librarian at the Bavarian State College State Collection of Zoology in Munich. Wow. So, I don't know. Not only am, like, I so, uh, am I so incredibly amazed that she was able to get through that experience. A broken clavicle. Like, a ton of gashes. What Not being able to fucking something? see. Yeah, she had a lot of injuries. And a lot and- of bugs burrowing into her skin but like i don't know had she not survived that all that scientific all the published scientific research and like all the discoveries in that area may not have you know it might not have been as big of a uh you know garden of eden as i say if it hadn't been for her survival and for her ability to you know, make something good out of that. Yeah, that is honestly extraordinary. Wow. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Insane. What an amazing person. Yeah, true badass. Honestly, just speaks so much to like what we can do if we uh, yeah have the, the determination. determination. Jinx. <gasps> So yeah, that's my story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, sorry about the maggots. Mm, Uh, That was pretty bad. I just have a really hard time with that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I was just like... I have a very hard time with maggots, specifically. (laughs) I mean, Um, like, does anyone have a good time with maggots? I don't know. I don't know, but... People who study maggots, probably. (laughs) Um, That's incredible. Yeah. 17 years old. Thank you for sharing, Pearl. Thank That's you incredible. for sharing. Now we both know something we didn't know before. And now y'all may know something you didn't know before. Yeah. 
That, I don't know. I'm not trying to tell you what you know. That was a nice inspirational note to kind of end on. Yeah. Today. So rest yeah. in peace to all the, you know, people everyone. who <laughs> didn't survive. To everyone. <laughs> Uh, the people who didn't survive and their families, because that's yeah. just, uh, I mean, in your story and in mine, like, yeah. plane crash, doesn't matter if you know what happened to these people or not. Or like not. It's still tragic. That's so the, um, the lack of closure is mm -hmm. just really fucked. It's really, really horrible. All right. Do we have anything anyway. else? something fun to end on no um, i think that was a really inspirational note to end on and i hope that everybody knows or knows a little bit more now that of, of what you're capable of if you just put your mind to it even if all the odds are against you um you're a person which means you're capable of such crazy baddie. greatness uh the only one limiting yourself is you <laughs> uh-oh fuck so, okay yeah thanks again for being here with us today um if you'd like to support us as a small podcast the best thing that you could do is rate us on whatever platform you're listening on and um share our content with your friends and family go on our instagram and tiktok you can find us at rants and rabbit trails pod like and comment on our content follow us uh, and feel free to comment um, what your favorite parts of certain episodes were. Uh, comment any ideas that you have that you would like us to talk about um, or kind of ramble about. And yeah, what else? You ever have some shit to say? You can always DM us and we'll be here <laughs> and we'll be back with more stories. Yes, we will. <laughs> Thanks for your support. Mm, goodbye. Goodbye.